I'm sure glad you're here. Thanks for coming to the gathering. Um, I'm going to do a really quick recap because today is really part two of a two-part series. And and I don't need to reteach uh, last month, but I need you to know a little bit so that you know where we're coming from for today. So we were looking last month at the question, does the Bible really say the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home? And if you're here, you will know that verbatim, no, it actually doesn't say that. Uh, There's nowhere in the Bible that says the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home. There are some verses in the Bible that say the man is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and as God is the head of Christ. And so what we unpacked last week was there has been a stereotype within evangelical Christianity of what being the spiritual leader looks like, and that has become one-size-fits-all, and it's become a prescription for others, and it's become quite limiting to both men and women. And so if we deconstruct what it has come to be, we can then reconstruct what God intends it to be. And so we looked at the fact that with God as the head of Christ... Christ submitted himself completely to the Father, and then the Father raised him up to his right hand and empowered him and gave him all authority in heaven and earth. And with Christ as the head of the church, the church is to submit to the leadership of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is in submission to Christ. And Christ then raises the church up and seats her at his right hand, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples of all the earth. And he gave us spiritual gifts, and he gave us his Holy Spirit. He equips and empowers his church to go and be a part of building his kingdom. And so then we look at those two metaphors, and we say, as God is the head, and as Christ is the head, so man is the head. And you can see it even if you weren't here last month to hear the whole hour long. See, you guys are just getting the little five-minute Reader's Digest version and you get the whole picture anyway because we've made this to mean that the man gets to make the decisions in the home. And God meant it to mean that the man got to empower and equip his wife to move forward in all of her gifts and all of her strengths and all of her Holy Spirit empowerment to build the kingdom of God just like the rest of the church. And that when we put men in a box and say leadership has to look like this, and we put women in a box and we say submission has to look like this, we are doing a disservice to the God of the universe who created something so beautiful and so amazing and so empowering in our relationships with each other, and we have narrowed it down to this little one-size-fits-all prescription and formula. And isn't it interesting that in most of our spiritual life, people will tell you that walking with God is not a formula. Walking with God is leaning into the Holy Spirit. It is listening to the Holy Spirit and is learning to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And yet in this one, so much of the church says, walking with God looks like this. And I am not angry about God. And I am not upset. I just want us to break out of the box. And I am not a feminist. But I want us to break out of the box and see that God's heart for us is for us as women to thrive. And I want to say this. If you are here today, and we're going to start talking about what does it mean that the Bible says that women are to submit to their husbands, and you're not married, I still think this teaching can apply to you. Because our theology influences how we think God feels about us. And how we think God feels about us influences how we feel about ourselves. And how we live on a day-to-day basis, even though it might seem kind of intellectual and removed, is absolutely influenced by what our theology says. And if our theology says 
that the relationship between men and women was designed by God for men to be in charge and make all the decisions and women to do what they say, then we are going to establish a certain belief about what God thinks about us as women, and I think it would be a false belief. I think it would be an error. And so as we dive into this today, we're going to take a look at what does submission look like across Scripture? And just as we looked at what did it look like for God to be the head— Jesus was one who was in submission, and Scripture tells us how he submitted to God and what that looked like. So as women, we've got a model laid out for us in Scripture of how to submit to the head that God lays out in Scripture for us. So that's where we're going today. I'm going to read us a couple verses, because our question is, does the Bible really say wives need to submit to their husband? And the answer is, unequivocally, absolutely, yes, verbatim. This is no pithy statement that we just pulled out of the air and made something up about. It's here. Has the statement gained a life of its own? Has it become a one-size-fit-all? I think so. We're going to try to break that down. So, Ephesians 5. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives, you should submit to your husbands in everything. We go ahead and we read another similar passage from Colossians 3, uh, starting in verse 18. Instructions for Christian households. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. I'm going to go ahead and read the paragraph that talks about slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. So here are our passages for the day. Uh, we're going to dive into a lot more scripture, but these are kind of our starting place. And Kara's going to start handing these out because we're going to go into some table talk time. And what you're going to have is a cream-colored packet that's got a whole bunch of scripture in it. I just read from the verses on the front page. And the question is, how do you feel when you read these verses? And ladies, I don't want pat good Christian women answers. Okay? If I had been, if you had asked me this question in a, when I was about 22, 23, 24, my honest answer would have had to have been angry. These verses make me feel angry. Now, I have a different answer now, and I'm going to tell you about that as we go on this morning. But you could be anywhere across the board. You have, may have discovered the beauty of what God meant, and it's working for you in your marriage, and you can share that at your table. But if you have confusion, fear, anger, share that, Okay? And then I said, what do you think submission means or looks like? So you might have an experience you want to share, something that you think. We're going to take five or ten minutes around your tables, and you can discuss this, okay? Uh, The green handout I will explain later. So the cream one for table talk. We're going to bring it back up here, but I'm always sorry to interrupt. I'll let you finish up a little bit. I'm guessing that if I could have sat at each table. I'm guessing that if I could have sat at each table, I would have heard some similar things at each table and many different things at each table, that our experiences and our 
uh, what our concepts of this are. Some of us are largely formed from a similar background, and some of us have had such different experiences that I'm guessing if we were to canvas the room, there'd be a lot of different uh, perspectives on this one. Um, I happened to be sitting at a table that I sat down, and they said, oh, you're going to join us. And I said, yeah, but I'm not in charge. They said, this is no problem, Jennifer. We're all a table of leaders. We're all strong women here. And so that influences our conversation on this, right? Because... Um, and, and I said this last month, if you are a woman who has gifts and abilities that equate with what our world would say are leader abilities and strength abilities, it's difficult to know what our role is and what we can do and what we can't do. And that's what I would love to get away from today. So I'm going to give you a little bit of the punchline first. I think submission is way less about what we do and way more about where our heart is at. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. Um, But it has been narrowed down into this thing that's just about decision-making. You know, um, in a healthy relationship, the husband and wife both have opinions. They talk about it. The husband loves the wife as Christ loves the church. He's very open to her. But in the end, he bears the responsibility and he's the one who gets to make the decision. That was my sum total of understanding of submission when I got married. And I'm not saying that that's false, but I'm saying it's very, 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 very incomplete. There's a much bigger picture than just who gets to make the decisions in the household. And quite honestly, if you're a sharp decision maker and you are acting in love and you and your husband have established a relationship where you guys appreciate, enjoy, and respect each other, and he likes that you'll decide where the kids are going to have their piano lessons. I mean, I don't know what the decisions look like in your family, but make decisions. It's much less about what we do and much more about the position of our heart. We're going to take this and we're going to back it away from the question of men and women, okay? Because the question of men and women for some of us is so volatile and there's so much experience and there's so much present angst about the question because we know the relationships we're in, we know the problems we're up against, we know the things that are frustrating us, and we can't see through all of our experience to really hear truth on what God might mean on this. So we are going to back it away from the question of what does it look like for a woman to submit to a man. And we're going to look at what does it look like for a person to submit, period. What does the Bible mean when it uses the word submit? Before we do that, I need to make a little disclaimer. Um, There are some of you for whom this conversation really, really quickly turns sideways because you are in a relationship that might be abusive. Now, I can't say if it is or not. I don't know your situation, and that is not my area of expertise. But I do know that in a room this size, it would be very unlikely that there is no woman who is dealing with a relationship where the man in your life has used this biblical teaching to figure that he is entitled to control you and to impose his will on you. And I can't tell you how to figure that out. But I can say that if this turns sideways in you and you've got confusion and questions, please, please talk to someone that you trust. And talk honestly with someone who is safe, who will keep your confidences and say, this is the situation that I'm in. This is what it looks like. Do you think this is just the self-denial that God asks of me and it's hard? Or is there something unhealthy and not right in this? Because there do come, there does come a time and there is a place where submission crosses a line into destructive and it's not okay. 
but that's not what I'm talking about today. And so I need you to know that if that's one of the question marks in your head, you need to get that question answered and you need to pursue somebody safe and you need to recognize that it's possible that you're going to hear the things I say through the filter of your home and it could turn sideways and you might have some wrestling going on in your heart and I might not be answering your questions because you might need to be asking different questions, okay? So as we back this away from what does it mean for men and women, and we look at it just in the Bible, you can flip your first page, and we're going to be right here in Philippians 2. And what I did with this packet was I tried to give you all the scripture passages that I might pull from, because I know that sometimes when I'm talking, I will say, you know, somewhere in the Bible it says this, but I don't know where it is. But I wanted you to have at your fingertips the passages and the things that we're going to talk about, and I wanted you to have the passages in context. We are not going to read through all of this together this morning. I'm going to pick and choose certain verses, but I wanted you to have to be able to take home the passages in context. So where we're headed with this is that Jesus is asking all believers, men and women, to submit. And we're going to take a look at what is the posture of submission? What is the meaning of submission? What is the relationship between people? And then we're going to bring it back into what does that look like then for men and women? So starting in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Can I just say that I believe that you can agree with each other without always having the same opinion. That I believe that you can have one mind and purpose without always having the same opinion on things. That you can have unity without unanimity. That we always have to say the same things, believe the same, look at the same things. I can agree with you in love. I can agree with you in prayer. I can say, I want my heart to reflect Jesus. I want our relationship to be one of humility and love without agreeing that I think this on this position and you think this on this position. Uh, one of the ways I like to look at this is if I have somebody in my world, a coworker, uh, maybe my spouse, maybe my kids, and there's a conflict where we don't agree, the agreement is that we are on the same team. You are not my enemy. This is not me against you. I am in agreement that we are on the same team and that the problem is out there and it's you and I against the problem. And this problem is an opportunity for you and I to find a way to understand each other and to see each other and to get to know the other person's perspective and the other person's point of view as a team. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of this dark world. Ladies, if we forget that there is a spiritual reality to our world, we are in danger of making the person in our life the problem. And the person in our life is not the problem. It is the powers and the principalities in this, in this broken world. It is the presence of sin. It is the presence of evil. It is the presence of sin in our own lives. There are things that we might need to repent of. There are things that God might convict us of. But the problem is not the person that we're in conflict with. The problem is the brokenness and the evil in our world. And we are a team. And we face the problem together. Yeah. That was just a tangent. Bonus. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Can we be a little honest? I think this is really hard. And I think those of us who've been raised in the church, we know we're supposed to do it. And so we're really nice about the way we pursue our own way. 
42 years old, and I'm a parent, and I've got three kids, and I'm trying to teach them that they don't always get what they want. But you know what? I pretty much always get what I want. If I want a new shirt, I go buy it. If I want a day off, I get a babysitter. If I want a job, I go and find one. We're adults, and quite often, we get to do what we want to do. We don't, we're not pressed by self-denial very often. And if there's one thing that's come out of this preparing to teach for you guys, for me personally, it's a heightened awareness of my deeply rooted self-centeredness. This is not easy to look out for others. Verse 4, don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And here's where we get this model. If Jesus was one who had a head over him, and we are called to have a head over us, what does that look like? Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. The submission of Jesus Christ led him to the most excruciating death ever devised by men. It led him to a life where he was misunderstood, misrepresented, falsely accused. You and I would have been screaming our heads off. That's not what I said. That's not what I meant. This isn't my fault. We would be demanding our rights to be understood, to have truth be told, and to have people around us know what our intentions were. Jesus did not do that. He submitted himself willingly to the Father, and the Father led him through pain and death for the sake of you and I. That is submission. Why? Why would he do that? Because he knew who God was, and he knew who he was serving. In a verse that I don't know where it is because I didn't look it up for this, it tells us that there was a point in time when the crowd was really getting behind Jesus, and it said they wanted him to become king. And it says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of men. He didn't entrust himself to the ones who wanted to exalt him. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God because he knew God. And ladies, our ability to submit and entrust our lives to God, clear the slate of whether or not this is about men or husbands, our ability to submit to God is directly proportional to how, whether or not we trust God. You see, God is good, and God does want our best. But if you and I have had some life experiences that make us not believe that, I'm skipping. Don't worry about following me with your little packets, okay? If you and I have not had an opportunity to know God's goodness, then what's going to happen is, in a teaching like this, in your soul, you're going to bump into a brick wall. And you're going to go, I want to go there. I want to listen to what she's saying. I want to trust God, but there is a brick wall in my soul, and I can't do anything about the fact that I am bumping into it right now. And I want to say that if you question God's goodness, and if you question whether or not God is trustworthy, you are in good company. And that does not disallow you from being a Christian. It just means you're a Christian with questions. And we need to go to God with our questions, and we need to ask him our questions. And it's possible that you can't even talk about submission or listen about submission today because the question you need to ask God is, God, would you expose what is hindering me from trusting you? Because we're kind of like trees, and trees have this trunk and all this beauty up here, and yet it also has roots that are below the surface that we can't see. And yet what's happening in our roots, and what our roots tap into, and what's blocking our roots, and what's feeding our root make a very impactful, 
they're very impactful in who we are and how, what fruit we bear. And so if we've got a root that's supposed to be the root that taps into God's love and his goodness that allows us to trust him so that we can lean on him for the things in our life that are difficult, and that root is blocked off for some reason, or that root is tapped into entitlement, or that root is tapped into bitterness, or resentment, or hurt, or fear, then we can't trust God. And so you may need to stop here, quit listening, and just say, God, I need to know how to begin to trust you. I need you to prove that you're trustworthy. There's been enough pain in my life that I'm just not sure. John 10.10 said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. If you don't know the God whose purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life, you need to get to know him. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. God wants good for us. He wants us to have a rich and satisfying life. And if we don't believe that, we can just set aside the question of submission to him until we can believe that. So in Philippians, after Jesus has laid down his life, we start in verse 9. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Did you see it? Jesus humbled himself, and God exalted him. Jesus submitted himself, and God raised him up. This is the picture of godly submission. When we try to lift ourselves up, it doesn't turn out well. Because it's usually based on entitlement or pride or fear or self-defense. And we're trying to put ourselves forward and we're trying to demand that we get what we need because nobody else is going to look for us and you can't tell me what to do. And when we try to set ourselves up, it doesn't work out well and relationships break. But when we, with humility, entrust our hearts and our rights and our lives to Jesus Christ, then he can lift us up. Ladies, it is not wrong to be strong. It is not wrong to be a leader. It is not wrong to have opinions. You can be successful and visible and in leadership circles and still be humble and have your life entrusted to God. It's way less about what we do and way more about the posture of our heart. We're not going to spend time with these, but I want to point out what this is. What I'm talking to you about right now is what some authors and writers would call a spiritual discipline of submission. So you've heard of the spiritual discipline of prayer or the spiritual discipline of fasting or silence. These things that we do, these practices that we do to mature in our growth. Well, when you get into spiritual disciplines, you find that many of the books have a spiritual discipline of submission that has nothing to do with men and women. It has everything to do with, as believers, how do we practice living the way that God invited us to live? And so that's what this green sheet is. Last night I forgot to introduce it, so I just pulled it out to say, this is kind of a description and some thoughts and some scriptures and some practice. If you're going, I want to look more at this idea of just what a Christian, what a believer's response responsibility and call and invitation is in submission, this is a great tool, okay? So in this light of submission as a practice for all Christians, we need to look at the fact that Jesus has an upside-down kingdom. So if you flip with me in your little packet, we're going to go past Ephesians 4 
and past Colossians 3 and look at the verses on the back side of the Colossians 3 page. At the top it says the upside down kingdom of Jesus. And I just have to tell you, I'm so upside down and backwards, I don't even know what order we're going to get things all out in, but I think we're going to get them there, and I think we're doing okay. We start at the top, Mark 8:35. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. Look down at Mark 9:35. He called the disciples and he said, "Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone." Luke 6 says, "Give, and then you'll receive." Acts 20 says, "It's more blessed to give than to receive." Are you following this? Here's this upside-down kingdom that we see in Philippians 2. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at, even though he was God. Rather than grasping at what he was entitled to, he submits to the will of the Father, even though it led him into pain. And from that, he gets lifted up, he gets exalted, and all of humanity gets rescued. God's kingdom is a backward, upside-down kingdom where to go up, we need to go down. I have this thought that has come in three times and it keeps escaping me when I'm stopped. It will come back. And I'm just going to interrupt the sentence I'm in and say, this is it! (laughs) We have this upside-down kingdom of Jesus and this is it. I just got it again. One of the authors of the spiritual discipline books, uh, Richard Foster, as a matter of fact, it's the other handout that you have that's, yo, you don't have this one, that's on purpose. This one is gray, it's a chapter in a book by Richard Foster, and it's called The Discipline of Submission. It's on the back, and the reason it's back there is because I want you to want it, to go get it, because it's kind of heady reading, but it's good stuff. It's the best I've ever read about, just as Christians, what we need to do in submission. And what he says is this. Every discipline has a corresponding freedom. So when we practice things in the spiritual realm, when we are disciplining ourselves to do what we believe God is calling us to do, there is a corresponding freedom that God is giving us. And the corresponding freedom to submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. Did you hear that? We are driven to demand our rights to try to get our own way, to defend ourselves against others who are not giving us our rights. And the discipline of submission gives us the freedom from this demanding need to always get our own way. And ladies, I'm not sure we see that we need it. But, but can you feel it? Are you thirsty for it? We're desperate for it. We need somebody to say, it's not all about you. There is too much responsibility on us when we are responsible for our own well-being, for our own keeping. Sometimes we know that God has called us to lay down this responsibility, or we know this is somebody else's decision and I don't need to be involved in it. But are we aware that the very well-being of our own lives, that our own future is not our responsibility? It lays in the hand of God, and as long as you and I are demanding our rights, we are not able to enter into fully the beauty and the joy that Jesus wanted to give us of living this life without the incredible levels of stress that you and I live under trying to take care of ourselves. Submission is the practice that releases us and gives us the freedom to not always have to get our own way. So we keep reading. Galatians 3 begins to introduce a paradox to us. 328, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This train of thought is going to take us back into what does this mean for men and women. And before we get there, I want us to flip back to that Ephesians passage. And it's fascinating to me. So Ephesians 4, flipping back a page. 
It's fascinating to me that the chapters of the Bible that talk about men and women and husbands and wives in submission, both of them are also the chapters that talk about our posture in the body of Christ. So you look at Ephesians 4, verse 2. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So this begins to explain to us what is the posture then that Jesus is asking us of us in relationship with other believers, men and women. What is our posture? It's a posture of humility and gentleness. It's a posture of patience, making allowance for each other's faults. Really, how are we doing at making allowance for each other's faults? Are we pretty quick to dive in and correct? Do we have a critical spirit going on? If you flip over to the next page, which is Colossians 3, we look in verse 12. By the way, there's a lot of great stuff in context. It's why I gave you the whole passage. Colossians 12, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here it is again. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. If you look at verse 12, it says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves. Ladies, this is men and women. And you've got to understand that in the culture that this was being spoken to, women were in the same boat with slaves and children. Women were subject to men. They weren't taught in the synagogues. They weren't taught in school. They weren't, the men were chosen. Everybody else were just a support system for the men. And so for Paul to say, God chose you. He chose you to be holy by the blood of Jesus. And he chose you as one that he loves. And this is written to both men and women. This isn't about our station or our gender. This is about God and how he created us and how he's calling us to live with each other. And he's calling us to live with love, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is the way that we submit ourselves to one another, making allowances for their faults. This is the posture that is the universal submission among Christians. We lay down our rights, we consider others as better than ourselves, and we seek to see how we can serve the people around us in the name of Jesus with humility, going down, trusting God with whether or not we go up. It's not about position and success. It's about our heart. So now we flip back to that Galatians. And we're going to start to look back at what is God saying then about men and women. Thanks for flipping around with me today. Sorry it wasn't in the order that I was talking. Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the glorious message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and he abolished levels, he abolished hierarchies, he abolished the caste system, and he said it doesn't matter where you were born, who you were born to, what your job is or what your gender is, what the color of your skin is, if you're a slave, if you're not, none of that matters. You are a beloved child of God. You are chosen, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. Over and over again we see that this is what Jesus is saying. If you believe in me, you are a son, you are a daughter of the Most High God. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free. You guys need to understand that for the people of this culture, the no longer Jew or Gentile was a bigger deal than there's no longer male and female. 
Gentiles had no place in the kingdom of God by virtue of the Old Testament until Jesus abolished it. So you have to understand that this verse is absolutely crashing in on every cultural norm these people knew. There is not Jew or Gentile. There is not slave or free. There is not male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He is making an amazing declaration that we are all set free. And then you continue in Galatians, and it says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. What does this mean? Christ has set you free. The law is still here. Jesus fulfilled the law, released us from the law's requirements, and and sets us free. He calls us to live without sin, and yet he's covered our sin. And so don't be taken back into, this is the way it has to be. You're subject to you, and you're subject to you, and you're subject to you, because this is what the law says. Galatians tells us that the law kills, and the Spirit gives life. So don't be taken back into slavery. This is all set free. And then... You were called to freedom, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Do not let your freedom cause you to sin. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So we have this freedom, and we are not to be taken back in and be made slaves by the law. And yet, we're to serve one another in love, and we're not to bite and devour one another, and we're not to demand our rights. And what happens is we begin to recognize this tension. There is a tension in where we live. There is a tension in the teachings of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you look at the quote on the bottom of this page, it says, The life and teachings of Christ were often couched in paradox. Paradoxes, of course, are only apparent contradictions, not real ones. Their truth is often discovered by maintaining a tension between two opposite lines of teaching. Although both teachings may contain elements of truth, the instant we emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, the truth becomes distorted and disfigured. So think about some of the great tensions in the Christian faith. You've got grace and truth. You've got God's sovereignty and man's free will. You've got others that I can't think of off the top of my head. And if you take grace to the exclusion of truth and the law and what the Bible says is true, you end up with license. And yet if you take truth to the exclusion of grace, you end up with legalism. See, the polar ends of both are not good, and unless we hold them in tension with each other and accept the fact that we cannot wrap our brains around who God is and how he created his universe, and the fact that it is grace and it is truth, and taken to their polar ends, they seem like opposites, and yet held in tension with each other at the center, where is Christ, it is health, and it is what we need. And it is the truth that says, this is the truth of God. There are morals. There are rules. There is a way of life that God ordained. And we live it with grace poured out for all people at all times. Because we are all sinners. And as much as we are forgiven, as much as we forgive, that is how much we can be forgiven. And so in this same way with this male and female tension, if you've done much studying, you know that there's kind of two camps when it comes to husband and wife. One would be complementarian. That's kind of more when you take it out to its end, that's where our box is, our stereotypical wives need to obey their husbands, okay? That's where that end is. This is complementarian. Uh, They complement each other. They have different roles, 
okay? And on the other side, we have egalitarian. They're all equal. There are no differences. We are all one before God. And at the end of this spectrum is, I would, I would say, is where Christian feminism is, okay? And I believe that there is a difference between men and women. I believe that that was why in the Garden of Eden, God said, Adam needs a helper. And helper doesn't mean a little sweet helper who's going to do everything he says. Helper is actually a word uh, that in Hebrew is a word that is used for God. God is our help, our ever-present help. That's the word for help that they use when God created Eve. My favorite story about Eve, I forgot to tell this last night. You guys get a bonus on this one. I used to be a camp counselor 20 years ago, and at lunchtime we would gather all of our kids and we would tell stories and we were going through the Bible, and so you ask a lot of questions, and we were going through Genesis, and so I asked this group of boys, probably second or third grade boys, you know, what do you think Adam thought when he first saw Eve? I mean, you kind of build up this grand creation that God created in Eve, and this little boy says, hot damn. (laughs) I think you got it. God wasn't just making a little helper or eye candy when he made Eve. God was recognizing that Adam and how he had been created needed a partner. And so he created Eve. And Eve had a different structure. You and I know this. We've got different hormones. Our bodies are created different. There are different, there are differences between men and women. And there are differences in the way that we do things. And and here's what I want you to hear. The body of Christ does not need men to be more like women. And the body of Christ does not need women to be more like men. The body of Christ needs men to be sanctified by Jesus Christ and to live as sanctified men. And the body of Christ needs women to be sanctified by Jesus Christ and live sanctified lives as women. I was listening to a teacher who was talking about women in leadership, and he was saying, the problem is, as women have pushed for their rights to get into leadership, they feel like they have to lead like men lead. The church does not need women to lead like men lead. The church needs women to lead like women because the church needs the female gender as much as Adam needed Eve. The kingdom of God needs all of us, and your marriage needs all of you. Your marriage needs your strength and your giftedness and everything that God created in you. He needs you to bring it all to the table. And if you feel like there's a part of you that you can't bring to the table because it fits in this little box of it's too much of a leadership gift and my husband can't have me doing that, then you need to do business with God and find out how do you bring all of you to the table of your marriage and hold it in the tension of, with humility and with grace in submission to God and in submission to him, I bring every strength that I have to offer to this table. But the strength that I am bringing is not against you. The strength that I am bringing is with you. And if there is conflict and if there is tension, if there's a problem, the problem is out there. And we are a team. And we are looking at that tension and that problem and that conflict. And some of you might be going, nuh-uh, the problem sleeps in bed with me. (laughs) And I just need to say, please, please, Recognize that your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle is against the powers and the principalities of this dark world who want to tear you apart and want to tear apart your marriage because marriage is the bedrock that God based society on. And as marriage falls apart, so does our society. And the kingdom of God needs marriages that love and respect each other with both partners submitted and surrendered to the will of God. Jenny's planning our website. (laughs) Yes, I do know what you mean. Yep, yep, I do. 
I want to tell you my story. See where I'm headed, how much time I have left. Okay. For many of you, you've heard the first part of this story before. Some of you might have heard the second part, but it was several years ago. The first part of the story is uh, when Jeff and I got engaged, I went home that night and wrote in my journal, Dear God, it suddenly becomes imperative for me to understand what submission means because I'm getting married. And I don't like what the Bible says about submission. I get angry when I read these things. I get angry when I hear teaching on this, and I don't get it. Because, God, I believe that you are good. I believe that you have my best interest in mind. And I believe that if your word says that a wife is to submit to her husband, then submitting to my husband is something that's good for me. It's for my best, and it's what you want for me to thrive. Because John 10.10 says that your purpose is for me to have life and have life to the full. So if you tell me to submit, then submission is my way to life to the full. But I don't get it. And what I don't think is that submission means what I've always been taught it means. So, I have this shelf in my life. It's where I put theological concepts that I don't know what to do with. And there have been several things on the shelf throughout the course of my life. And I put submission up on the shelf. And I said, God, I don't get it. I don't like it. I know your heart. I trust you. When you want to show me what you mean, I am ready to listen. But until you show me, I can't figure this out. I'm just going to do the best I can. Now, you need to know that for the remainder of this story, the thought of submission never once came into play until the moment that I tell you it came into play, okay? So Jeff and I have been married a couple years. We started bumping into this thing where there were several topics, and just for the sake of illustration, I'm going to use one, where Jeff would have something he wanted to do, and I was just kind of a naysayer. So this one particular one was, he said, I would like to start a Bible study for couples. And immediately, my brain goes you got to figure out who to invite, and maybe they don't want to come, and then you feel rejected, and you got to figure out the curriculum, and then when they come, you've got to lead, and you know the discussion questions, and that takes energy, and we've got a baby, and I don't think this is such a good idea. All that thought process was like in 3.5 seconds. I mean, I'm pretty quick to naysay things. And like I said, there were several things where this was happening, and gently and gradually, the Holy Spirit started to speak to my heart. He started to convict me, and he began to invite me to step back and give my husband some room to try his vision and to try and to not be so quick to say no. And really, God began to show me that I was taking the ideas that Jeff was coming up with and immediately projecting myself into being the problem solver for his ideas and immediately counting the cost of how much it would count to me to do these things. But as God and I began to wrestle with this, and I have to tell you, it was a wrestling match. And I can't explain all that went on, but there was something massive in me that God was inviting me to lay down simply to stop saying no and to just let my husband walk out the ideas that he was talking about without stepping in and naysaying his ideas. And what I began to realize was, when he says, I'd like to have a couple's Bible study, I'd like to lead a couple's Bible study in our home, what he meant was, he would like to invite some couples, he would like to choose the curriculum, and, and he would like to lead, and he's wondering if I would like to do that with him. There was no responsibility in it for me at all. He was just wondering, do you want to be my partner in something I feel called to do? And as I began to step back and just not say no quite so quickly and allow him to just explore and try the things that he was exploring and trying, two things happened. One was in me. 
my stress levels started to go down because I didn't realize how much I was taking responsibility for his ideas and my ideas and what the kids needed and what their kids' friends needed and what the rest of our family needed. And I was trying to keep in my brain straight all the things that we're, tr we're trying to do and make sure that... It, and I'm trying to control the world and all of its outcomes with this brain and the worry and the anxiety and the stress level. And as I began to say, that's your idea. I don't have to take responsibility for it. Stress level drops a notch. And he's doing something else, and I think, wait a second, he didn't ask me to step in and do this. Stress level comes down a notch, and I'm beginning to find myself in kind of a free space where I don't have to try to fix and figure out all the outcomes for our family. And then the second thing that started happening was Jeff just started to, I don't have a very masculine word for it, uh, blossom. <laughs> It's kind of like the guy who snaps his suspenders and say, my woman believes in me. There was something that rose up in him when I showed that I believed in him, that I respected him, that I trusted that if he had an idea, he could carry it out to the end and he didn't need me. And we began to enter this space that I remember just being in a place with God one day going, I just feel like I'm in a wide open meadow. I'm kind of claustrophobic, so that's my happy place. A wide open meadow, flowers, sunshine, fresh air. I don't have to be responsible for everything, and my stress level is going down, and I feel like I can rest in this. I can trust Jeff, and I know, and he's just doing great with this, and our marriage is doing great. And God's gentle and still voice said, Jennifer, this is submission. And I went, this wide open meadow where I don't have to carry things I'm not responsible for, and my husband is thriving because I'm trusting him to carry the things that he wants to be responsible for, but that I kept grasping and grabbing because I didn't think he could handle it. And I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have said, he can't handle that. But what I was living was, I need to be involved in all this because I have all these skills, and, and, and me, 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 me. All I could see was how I needed to insert myself into what was going on. And it wasn't a matter of me obeying my husband. It wasn't a matter of me letting my husband make all the decisions. It was a matter of me recognizing that I could step back and I could trust him and he would thrive and I would thrive. And you need to hear that I wasn't trying to figure out how to submit to my husband. I was trying to figure out how to obey the Holy Spirit of the living God. God in his graciousness did not make that a conversation with me about submission. He made that a conversation with me about listening and trusting his nudges. And honestly, I think that's the way that we go forth with what we're called to do. The Bible does say that we are to submit to our husbands. And I think the way that we do that is by listening to the Holy Spirit of the living God and surrendering our lives to him, even when it's scary, even when it's painful, even when we lay down something that we felt was really important to us, if God is leading us, then we will listen and we will obey. If you're in a place where you listen and you say, yeah, Jennifer, this is all fine and good for you, but my husband isn't loving me the way Christ loved the church. And if I give an inch, he's going to take a mile. I would invite you to pray. To pray God's grace and his mercy over your husband. Um, don't pray for your husband to change. Don't pray for God to change your husband. God very, very rarely answers our prayers to change other people. 
Pray for God to give you what it takes to be the wife he created you to be to the husband that you're married to. God very, very often answers our prayers about ourselves. When my, young, my oldest son was about six months, I remember those days, you know these days, when uh, I needed a nap really, really bad, and you can just absolutely count on the three hours in the afternoon, and that's the one day that he doesn't nap. And I remember laying in my bed praying, God, make him sleep! God, make him sleep! God, make him sleep! And he never once answered that prayer. <laughs> and I finally began to realize, oh, and so I would change my prayer, and I would say, dear Jesus... I thought I needed a nap today. I don't feel like I can go one more step. It's pretty apparent that this boy is not going to sleep today. So would you give me what I need to finish today? Would you give me the energy? Would you give me the strength? Would you give me the ability to be the mother I need to be when I just did not get what I thought, what I firmly believed I absolutely needed? You've been in those places in life where you didn't feel you could go one more step and then you get up and you take the next step. Those are the prayers that God answers. And so if you find yourself stuck, pray for God's miraculous intervention. Pray for getting unstuck. Pray that he will open eyes that are blind. Pray that he will expose the lies of the enemy. Pray that he will give you what you need. So we're going to look at the very back, and I'm going to wrap this thing up. Ladies, we're getting there. What submission is? Godly submission, as laid out in Ephesians and Colossians, is going to reflect a humble, a gentle, a patient, compassionate, kind spirit that has a lot of grace for the faults of those around us. Godly submission is going to reflect a number of different leadership styles, personalities, and God languages. If you don't get that at all, listen to the podcast from last month, and it will make sense that I'm applying the same teaching to this month. We are all so wired so differently that godly submission is going to look different for all of us. Godly submission is going to consider the interests of others. Godly submission is going to resist a complaining and a critical spirit. If you look up the verses in Proverbs, it talks about that it's better to live on the corner of a roof than with a nagging wife. That a nagging wife is like a dripping faucet. And ladies, some of us today, the one takeaway point that we need is that we need to confess that we've had a critical spirit and we have been quick to step in and correct our husband and we've been quick to point out his mistakes and we have got to establish that ability to have grace with the faults of others, to bite our tongue, and to turn that thought into prayer. Dear Jesus, give me what I need in this moment. Dear Jesus, expose to him what he's doing when he says that to me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. But when we take out our hurt and our pain and our problems with a critical spirit, we are damaging our marriage. I want to draw a picture for you here that's not on your papers. There is a cycle in relationships that can get going, and it's this, that we as women don't find our needs met, and whether that's legitimate or whether we're being selfish doesn't matter in this picture, okay? We might actually be honestly hurt by injustice. doesn't matter if it was an honest injustice or our own self-centeredness. The cycle starts because we don't feel like we're getting our needs met, and so we turn critical. And when we become critical and chippy and nagging, and our husband begins to feel like it'd be better to live on a corner of a roof than to live with us, then he begins to withdraw what we need. 
And he can't reach out to us with tenderness and he can't cherish us and he can't love us and he can't listen to what our heart is really saying because we're couching it in such an unapproachable manner that he begins to withdraw and, and, and he isn't loving us the way Christ loved the church because we're living with a critical spirit and we're not respecting him. And so this cycle continues, and unless somebody has the courage to step out of the cycle, it will continue to spin and spin and spin, where we don't feel like we're getting our needs met, so we get critical and we chip away, and we try to demand that we get our needs met, and so he pulls back, and he gets defensive, and he can't love us the way he needs to love, and so he begins to demand that we start submitting to him and respecting to him because he doesn't feel like his needs are getting met, and around and around and around the cycle goes until somebody ends up divorced, and all of us around go, how did that just happen? They didn't get married with the intention of getting a divorce. They didn't mean to be that mean to each other. What happened? Well, it's really hard to step in and break the cycle because let's say it's me. And let's say I don't feel like I'm getting my needs met. And let's say I feel like I need to start to respect my husband even if he is not loving and cherishing me. That is a vulnerable place to be because I am putting myself into a cycle that has gotten really pretty toxic. And I am putting my real self in and I'm saying, I am going to respect you and I am going to submit to God. And in submitting to God, I am going to treat you with humility and patience and give you grace for your faults and I'm going to extend forgiveness for you and I'm going to speak positively into your life and I'm going to communicate to you that I believe in you and I am going to try to put myself by the grace and the will of God in a place to break this cycle. And if he does not respond, I could get really badly hurt. But if nobody tries to break the cycle, it just continues on and on and on. And I'm not speaking to the men about how they could break the cycle. I'm speaking to you about how you could break the cycle. Godly submission is a response to an invitation to give up our lives so that we can gain the life God has for us. It is a call to selfless living. It's a hard call, but it's a good call. Remember this picture in Galatians where we're all totally free and yet in our freedom submit to one another? There is something way different in a slave who knows that in the kingdom of God he's free and his physical condition has not changed in this earth. But he can submit to his master from a place of knowing inside himself, I am a free child of the living God. Then a slave who has never learned that, who has never heard that, has an earthly master who is harsh with him and has a sullen response of, I am demanded to do what this master wants and I don't have a choice and I don't have a will and I am stuck in this place. The situation hasn't changed. The slave still has a master, but this slave is free and this slave is not. And as women, if we've been raised in this picture of the church itself demands that I submit to my husband and I do what he wants and I give him all the decisions, I can be living in this place where I am called to respect somebody, but it's a demand and that becomes oppression. See, by its very definition, submission is voluntary. In the instant submission is demanded of us, it's oppression. And I want to raise up as a voice that says, you cannot demand submission of women. And yet God is saying, we must submit. But we've got to be like the slave on the other side that says, I know who I am. I know my freedom. I know this is not about a hierarchy. I know that this is not about my position about a male or a female. I am God's beloved child. And as God's beloved child, I am called to live in humility and laying down my life for others. And this wife can live with an attitude and a heart of submission where this wife can, whereas this wife is still a slave. Do you hear the difference? I've got one quote I want to read to you guys, and I just don't want to miss it because it's so very important. And you have it in your sheets on a page that says, so why is submission specifically addressed to women if it's a universal call to all Christians? I'm going to jump down to the second paragraph. 
And it says this. The letters of Paul first call to subordination those who, by virtue of the given culture, are already subordinates. So remember, wives, children, slaves, they're already subordinates in the culture that he's speaking to. The revolutionary thing about this teaching is that these people, to whom first century culture afforded no choice at all, are addressed as free moral agents. Paul gave personal moral responsibility to those who had not legal or moral status in their culture. He made decision makers of people who were forbidden to make decisions. The only meaningful reason for such a command was the fact that by virtue of the gospel message, they had come to see themselves as free from a subordinate status in society. Paul urged voluntary subordination not because it was their station in life. You must hear this. The call to submit to your husband is not because of your station in life. It's because it is fitting in the Lord to submit to one another. Let's pray. Father, I am guessing that as you have spoken to these women today, that there are things that are stirred up in their souls. Perhaps hope, fear, pain, anger, rejection, a way forward. Whatever it is, I want to pray that in these next few minutes, you would meet these women where they're at. That you would speak your spirit to their spirit. And you would give them hope and a future in whatever their situation is. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What we're going to do, um, Volanda and the worship team are going to come. They're going to play a little music quietly as you, and it might just be Volanda at first, as you guys have some time for response. On the, ba- on the very back page of this, it says our response. And I've given a few examples. You might want to talk with God about something different. You guys, there's some great passages of Scripture that you could just read through and make some notes to. You might already know what you and God need to talk about. Um, we are going to have a couple people who just come up here to the front, um, Kim and Brittany, are just going to be available for prayer. Because some of you might have found that you bumped into maybe that trust brick wall or that, I really think my husband is the enemy here and I can't really grasp what she's saying. You might need some help for God to help you move to where he's calling you to move. And they would love to pray with you. And if there aren't people coming up there, don't worry about it. Don't feel awkward for them because they're just praying for you anyway. All right? So we're going to end with some quiet time first and then Volanda will lead us out into some worship and wrap us up.